to those buried in each other's arms, holding each other's hands, wiping each other's tears, to those trembling still, to the children in wonder, to those who answered the call from far and wide, in yellow, in green, in orange, in blue, in khaki, in white, and under the cross of red, and those still dusted in black. To those pitching the canvas, those under it, those who have lost homes, lost livelihoods, to family and friends of those who have perished, but most of all, to those who have seen the flames, to those who have been blinded by the darkness of the day, smelled the smoke, heard the roar, and then in turn been deafened by the silence. A short snippet from a short but beautiful speech. Opposition leader Ted Bailey speaking at the National Day of Mourning for the Black Saturday bushfires at Rod Laver Arena in 2009. The Black Saturday fires resulted in the greatest loss of life from fire in my home state of Victoria since colonisation. 173 people lost their lives, 414 were injured, 450,000 hectares of land burned. It was a tragedy of immense proportions and... Ted Bailey will talk a little bit about that time and also a little bit about the speech he delivered at that sad and sombre occasion. Mr Bailey isn't just an ex-premier, he's also a Patreon subscriber for Speakola. It was exciting news when his name popped up. If you want to join him and help this podcast survive and thrive, you can join up at patreon.com forward slash Speakola or speakola.com forward slash donate and a straight out donation is available there too if that's easier for you. It is an expensive business both in time and in internet resources and if you can help me get to the line it would be greatly appreciated. I want to say a big thank you to James McNamara and Carol Hankinson who got on board in the last month and also to Teresa Bradley and Ed Heary who went through the Patreon platform. Much appreciated. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you, that we as a people will get to the promised land. Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the government yet. Speak Ola with Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome. I am Tony Wilson, and this is the Speak All Up podcast. Thanks so much for joining me for this terrific episode. We had a premiere a couple of weeks ago with Peter Malinowskis, 
current Premier of South Australia and a Labor politician. Today, it's from the other side of politics, the Honourable Ted Bailey, the 41st Premier of my home state of Victoria. I mentioned at the top there that Ted has been a financial supporter of Speakola. He's also been a supporter with speeches as well. He's offered up graduation speeches, he's offered up political speeches, and he's just corresponded with me about the glory of speeches. And so ever since I started doing the podcast, I've intended to get Mr. Bailey on, and today is the day. Speakola has a new sponsor. It is DocPlay. It's a streaming service made up exclusively of documentaries. My documentary is up there. Well, our documentary, a film called The Galahs, about a 1967 tour of Ireland, the UK and the USA by an all-star bunch of VFL footballers, including Alex Jezelenko and Bob Skilton and Hassan Mann and Ron Barassi. Royce Hart went and we interviewed as many of the surviving players as we could and got an incredible travel yarn and also a story of sporting achievement as well. Harry Beitzel's Australians took on the All-Ireland Champions, the Meath team. So that's the Galahs and it's up at docplay.com and you can become a Docplay subscriber for free for 45 days. That's a special offering through Speakola. Go to docplay.com forward slash racks forward slash Speakola. That link's in the show notes as well and you get 45 days free. Join up now and find out why Docplay has become my favourite streaming service. It's time now to play the interview with the former Premier. My first attempt to get Ted Bailey on as a guest ended in us having a very long and unrecorded conversation over lunch at a cafe in Hawthorne. And so we actually had to get together again to have a second attempt at it. He's a terrific conversationalist. He's got so many great stories about footy and and politics and the state of Victoria generally, and so many interests as well. He loves architecture. Got a great speech on Speakola about his love for architecture delivered to architecture students so go to the site and look up Ted Bailey and find the full collection of terrific speeches we've got from Ted Bailey. But here's our chat from the old Treasury building where Mr. Bailey has his office. Well, I'm here in the stately rooms of the old Treasury building and you can hear that lovely resonant echo and I'm speaking to a great man of Victorian politics and Victorian life. It's Mr Ted Bailey, the 41st Premier of Victoria. Thanks for joining us, Mr Bailey. Can I call you Ted? Uh, You can, Tony. Um, It's a joy to be here. I love this building and I say to people who haven't been here before, this building says more about Victoria than just about anything in this state and they look at me curiously and they think oh a boring old building doesn't mean very much but if you think about it this building is where the gold was housed downstairs are the vaults the gold was stacked to the ceiling gold bars and this was the the home of victoria's wealth and we were the wealthiest City fastest on Earth. growing city uh, on earth at the time, the wealthiest on earth, gold made Victoria's future. But what people sometimes don't realise, 
but learn with absolute fascination is the quintessential character of Victoria is represented by this building. Because it was built, designed built in the 1850s. And it was, what a lot, great deal here. There wasn't a Bunnings down the road that you could go and order the stone or order the timber. This had to be generated as a, a piece of construction, locally and thought through. But the decision makers of the day were extraordinary people. They had to be, to come here in the first place, to be ambitious, courageous and uh, have an eye on the future. Clearly, they had an eye on excellence, if you look at the, the work on this building. But they had a couple of other very endearing attributes which we sometimes forget and take for granted. One, they came from all over the world. They didn't just come from the UK or Great Britain. They came from all over the world, South America, Japan, China, South Africa, India. They came from all over the world, Europe. We were very early on in the um, post-settlement days a multicultural place. The other endearing quality they had was they were invariably very, very young. The decision makers were young. If you look at the architect of this building, J.J. Clark, came here in the early 1850s, I think, with his parents and siblings, went to work immediately with a government architect at the ripe old age of 13 with a well-established uh, track record of beautiful drawings in his repertoire, even at the age of 13, designed this building at the age of 19, mm. designed a number of other prominent buildings and died in his 20s. And there's an awful lot of um, the civic legacy of Victoria represented by that story. It's repeated often. Very young people making the decisions, very young people, ambitious, courageous, focused on the future, committed to excellence, multicultural in their origins, and young at heart. And that, for me, is quintessential Victoria. And I talk about that a lot. And you are trained as an architect, and I've, we've got a great speech on Speakola about your love of great design and great buildings. And Melbourne, in the era that you're talking about, it really was going down the path to being one of the most beautiful cities in that classical design building uh, in the world, wasn't it? Yeah, we, we, we have an extraordinary legacy of the parliament and the, the, the treasury building, town hall, the Melbourne town hall, and the exhibition buildings, which are now World Heritage listed, and not only that, our cathedrals. Now, we've seen, obviously, a lot of cathedrals in the last week here as we uh, viewed what's been happening in the UK with the death of the Queen. Extraordinary cathedrals. Westminster Abbey, over a 1,000 years old. Such a beautiful building. To think uh, how that came to be, how it was designed, how it was produced there for a 1,000 years. Our cathedrals, St John, uh, St Peter's, St um, Patrick's, St Paul's, just in this Collins Street spine alone, extraordinary legacy. And then you go to the regions, Ballarat, Bendigo, and likewise. We have beautiful architecture. We lost a lot of it in the 60s and early 70s, but we've still got an enormous amount. Well, I've got you on the podcast, the Speeches podcast, which you've been great at supporting. I have to say that... Mr. Bailey, you got on board. I often do the spruik for the patrons to put a bit of cash in each month. And 
was a bit of a thrill when I saw your name come over that uh, that a former premier was supporting the podcast and this speeches project. So it is also a thrill to get you on. Thanks. Well, it's a pleasure, but um, I love what you're doing, and uh, I love a good speech. And I think the um, the art of speech making is underrated and perhaps taken for granted a bit. And probably too many people are content to read a speech uh, that somebody else uh, writes for them. I never warm to that experience at all myself but I think there is a lot to be gained by the study of speech making the experience of it learning from it developing it as a as a craft I guess you'd say in 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 the way that um, performers do singers do in particular actors actresses do you become comfortable with how voice sounds and the way you use voice and the way you select words it's all important in the art of conveying a message. Can you take us back to your first speeches? Were you a debater at school? Were you the? When did you first have to stand up and, and stretch your voice box? Well, you're you're going to be surprised at this answer. We haven't discussed this before, but I was at school lined up to participate in my first debate. And I'll have to remember what year I was in, but it was probably year 10 or something like that. I can work it out later. And I was very nervous about participating in a, in a debate, even just a school debate. And I went home, and would you believe, I completely forgot that I had to prepare for a, a debate the next day at school. And... I can't attest to why I might have forgotten, but I remember arriving at school and suddenly realising, oh my God, I didn't do any preparation or homework for the debate. And I was facing a wipeout, but I was saved. Saved by the bell because everybody was at school that day heard the school bells go and we were all summoned to the assembly hall because Neil Armstrong was putting his foot on the moon that day. <laughs> Neil Armstrong landing on the moon saved me from the torture of an unprepared debate. <laughs> and I reckon I learned more about that, more about uh, debating and speaking that day than just about any other time because... For me, it was just seared into me. No matter, what, no matter what you're doing, if you're public speaking or debating, you never know what's going to turn up and you've got to be prepared to handle the situation regardless uh, of what happens or even if you've got no preparation or even if you're suddenly thrust into having to speak without having done any prep at all. So I still think about that to this day. And so you become an architect, but is there a moment, whether it's at school or beyond, where you think, oh, no, I really enjoy this and I'm good at this, I can find the words. Was that in student politics at uni or was that uh, post an architecture career? When did you start thinking this might be your life? Uh, it's interesting. Um, I would classify myself as terrified of public speaking. And I certainly wasn't involved in student politics at university. I wasn't involved in young liberal politics or anything like that. I was nervous about public speaking. And then something came to me, and I can't remember the precise occasion. I think it might have been a uh, friend's wedding, and I spoke somewhat spontaneously there and hit a nerve with a, 
a line about something I'd seen that related to the the groom in particular and felt the warmth of the audience and that might have been the moment that I thought, oh, okay. I said something which people liked, made them laugh, got a connection and when you, when you get that, that first time you receive the warmth back, you think, okay, maybe I can do this. And I went from being nervous about it to thinking, okay, I'll explore words, I'll explore circumstances, I'll explore uh, the nature of speaking and uh, grew into it from there. And some people might be drawn to politics because they're good at this particular skill, but I I gather a lot of people are drawn into politics. Most aren't, interestingly, from my observation, most aren't. They want to change the world or they want power or they want privilege or status or that that might be the other things that are driving people it's actually fascinating because um i've had the privilege in recent years uh, last four five six years of choosing victoria's road scholar and also choosing the monash scholars which is an an australian equivalent and we see lots of extraordinary people in the process it's quite humbling to see the the cvs of young people who've you know, got three degrees, got first class honours, swam the channel and played at the, uh, the, uh, the Met in, in New York and, you know, have no problem with Beethoven's Fifth and all that sort of stuff and, <laughs> and speak six languages. And very few of them have comm skills. And I see the same thing. I, I've mentored a lot of um, students in architecture and, and the like and... Communication skills are not something that people gravitate to. Public speaking is not something that people gravitate to. And I often say to people, okay, you've ticked all of these boxes, but you haven't ticked this one. You're smart enough to know that if you, if you go and do some training, go and do some work, it'll help. So go and do it. And when you see somebody who's become comfortable with comm skills, you recognise it. And it's so much easier, even if you're the brightest spark in the room, if you add some comm skills. And it's really interesting to think that some of the great speakers, this is one of the experiences I've had um, making this podcast and also writing books, doing a biography for Alan Jeans at the moment and his players from the early 60s all talk about what a poor speaker he was. Just terrible was yep. their word. And he, I think he finishes up as one of the great coaching orators. He just learnt the tricks. He learnt volume and he learnt pace and... And even though his word choice was sometimes strange, he, he was effective. Um, and we had someone on, we had Frederick Logeval on as well. He was on this podcast. He's the biographer for JFK. And JFK was too fast, too nervous in the 50s when he's a, when he's a senator and had to really work to slow down to become one of the great orators of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it is interesting. It's very learnable, isn't it? Well, can I make a suggestion for it in tone? Get Patrick Cripps on. Do an interview with Patrick Cripps. I don't know whether you saw him on Brownlow Middle Night. I saw him. It was fabulous. It was just such a warm and endearing moment where he talked about his capacity to even speak to the media. And he he said that uh, he'd had a stutter, he was terribly nervous, he was captain, and he uh, made a rule with the club that he didn't want to talk to the media at all. He got some help. And what he did and said on Sunday night when he collected the brown light was fabulous. And I, I, I thought there is a lesson there and he's got a story to tell about public speaking, which he demonstrated to the world. And 
he won a, a million hearts, I think, on Sunday night just with that, let alone his performance on the football field, which is terrific as long as it's not against the Pussycats. Well, I have given you the blue microphone in the in the royal blue of Geelong. Uh, are you feeling confident? Are you going to? Are you giving us some speaking tips? Are you happy to give us footy tips as well? Because this will probably air after the game has. Well, I'm speaking with a lid on, Tony. I'm speaking with a lid on. <laughs> Stress, um, stressful. Yeah, I, I, I've discovered this year because I don't think many Geelong supporters went into the season with high, the highest expectations. But I've discovered that this team seems to have pretty good control of itself and it doesn't matter what colour socks I wear, what colour undies I wear, what side of the bed I get out of, or whether I uh, went the extra 100 metres in the pool on, on the morning of the game. It doesn't seem to matter. It's pretty impressive stuff. We're going to feature the speech you gave in 2009 during the Black Saturday National Day of Mourning ceremony. I think it was at the Rod Laver Arena. It was, um, yeah. And at the time, you were opposition leader, leader of the Liberal Party in this state. C- can you talk through what had happened? Obviously, the local listeners know about Black Saturday, but can you tell us what the lead-up to that event had been? Well, Black Saturday obviously got a lot of the attention because the worst of the fires happened on Black Saturday. The catastrophic fires were on Black Saturday, but the fires had been burning for some time and people forget that in Victoria and lives had been lost and there had been an incredible build-up to what was uh, a catastrophic day and uh, over, I think, 173 lives lost and the majority of those on Black Saturday or the day after. And yes, I was opposition leader, and literally, I remember where I was. Uh, I was uh, at a, a friend's house. I had been at a, um, a public event in Box Hill and I stood outside on the balcony and felt the wind and felt the, the fear. And I went to the friend's house and I spent the night well, watching the television and like everybody, uh, just staggered. And the next day, we went to Whittlesea. We went up to uh, King Lake, I think, and up as far as Marysville and down towards the Dandenongs. And uh, uh, we liaised with the government of the day, John Brumby, and John and I have known each other for... We were actually at school together. We are at primary school together. So we've known each other for a long time and we were able to connect in that way, which was a positive. And to feel the pain and suffering on the ground was extraordinary. To see the devastation was extraordinary and yes we've had bushfires before but it's been a long long time since Victoria has seen anything like this and and in terms of tragedy and I remember being at the showgrounds at Whittlesea and the buses coming down from King Lake and people pouring out of the buses in tears and distraught and some of them just wearing the clothing they literally ran out on with you know shorts or maybe a t-shirt or something some of them uh, clearly suffering and there were firefighters there and someone came out of the crowd, came up and gave me a hug and I didn't realise that was somebody I knew. You know, black all over the face and clothes in a shambles. Incredibly traumatic time. And then we found ourselves some weeks later having the service down at Rod Laver Arena, and I think, if I remember rightly, Princess Anne came out and was there, and obviously a, a lot of attention. 
and we'd had um, a pretty bipartisan approach to the tragedy on the ground, getting around, liaising with each other, and John and I talked a number of times, and John found himself without a jacket one day. I had a spare in the car. He ended up wearing my, one of my jackets. You know, that it, it was that sort of atmosphere. So when it came to plan the service, it was the right thing to do, and I paid tribute to John and those who organised to make it a bipartisan effort, and there were a lot of prominent speakers, and I was given an opportunity to say a few words as well. And it was a, you, you were given a very short opportunity. It's not a very long speech. Do you remember what the window was? Did they say, can you do five minutes or something? I, I think it might have been three minutes. I, I, I can't remember precisely, but it wasn't long, and nor should it have been long. And I wrote myself something, and I, I think I had it on one page. And I had a, a folder with me, and I remember walking into Rod Laver Arena, and the, the stands were full. And I looked around, and I saw this extraordinary array of people in the stands. There were Faris wearing yellow. There were. SES wearing orange, there were the Park Service wearing green, there were Red Cross, there was Ambos, there were police in their uniforms, there were all sorts of people assembled there, there were nurses sitting in groups and it wasn't like we saw the Queen's funeral, everyone wearing black. It was people straight out of the street being what they were. Fireys, Ambos, um, Police, Red Cross, the works. And to walk into that theatre as it was on that day, I sat down and I said to my wife, this is amazing, I'm, I have to, I've got to adjust here. Reading the room's part of any messaging. And I literally... I had one message that I wanted to give about everybody working together and I sat down and I scrawled all over my one page what I saw in the room and then I said to myself, it's not just the people in the room, there are people beyond the room as well and I need to, obviously every speech require some acknowledgements and either the best thing I can do is acknowledge the people in the room and the people beyond the room. And so I changed course and that was the speech. Well, it's really, it's a beautiful speech. I've put it up on social media many times and I always get a really warm response and a very bipartisan response as well, maybe from people who, who wouldn't be embracing you as, at the very mention of your name, go, wow, what yeah. a speech. Um, I think it's sort of universally regarded as such. And you've got this great opening line, to each and every one of you sharing this quiet. And I guess quiet is uh, um, the roar of the flames and we know what the state's been through and then everyone is in, in this moment of quiet. And, you know, it's a really, as we start getting noise in here, <laughs> but it is a really well-chosen word. Would that be the sort of word where maybe you did have your opening line set up? No, that was, that was a read the room line. 
uh, I walked in there and was stunned by the quiet, as I'm sure people would have been at the Queen's funeral. Uh, and even in the uh, pageantry outside, it was some time when the hearse going by before people started to applaud even in, in London. So the quiet was as compelling as the colour. And I always, I always say to people about speech making, it's good to have something in your mind that you want to say. You, you have to have a message. But the, one of the most important things you can do is to walk into a room or a situation and read that room, read the situation and understand what people in the room are thinking and who they are and what they might connect to. So that was just a line that emerged and I have, I'm fond of the word quiet, not in a Barry Humphreys way, but uh, I think it is, it's a lovely word, the diction, the, it's almost a, a syllable and a half, if you know what I mean. It's not quite a single syllable word, it's not quite a two syllable word. It's got a dimension to it which is um, unique. Well, it's nice to hear you talking about that musicality of language. I think that's, that's what writers look for and what speakers look for and so often it is the sound of a word that makes it settle well yeah. in, in the speech. And you also mentioned colour, and that, that becomes the prompt for, for much of this very short and beautiful speech. You mentioned, to those who answer the call from far and wide, in yellow, in green, in orange, in blue, in khaki, in white, and under the cross of red, and those still dusted in black. You know, it's just a, a really lovely way of of giving a visual and descriptive sense and not, and not following what I would regard as the standard pattern of this sort of a speech. The we all act together is perhaps the standard pattern, but to have the beautiful descriptives and the emotive descriptives, I think, is what makes this stand out. Well, if I can detach myself from that speech for a moment, because... I was con content with that speech at the time. I don't want to suggest that it was any brilliant speech or more important than anything on the day, but um, I'm honoured to have your reflection on it. But I just wanted to make an observation, which I make when I write, when I write and when I talk about people writing or speech-making. I say, put all your thoughts down on paper now, then try and order them in a way that makes some sense and that, that brings the start and the finish together, then go back, reread it, and ask yourself, can I animate this in, the, in a different way? Then go back and ask yourself with every paragraph, if I didn't have that paragraph, would it be better or worse? And then go back and ask yourself the same of every sentence. If I didn't have that sentence, would it be better or worse? And then go back the last thing, maybe the second last thing, and say, is there, another is there another way of saying what I'm saying? Can I put the words back the front? Can I use a different word to describe a situation? And if there's a better way of saying it, say it. And the last thing I say to people is, don't be frightened to change your speech right up to the moment that you give it. If you think at the very last moment there's a better way of saying something, don't feel 
tied to what you were going to say because it's written down. Go with your heart and read the room. No one knows what you were going to say but didn't. They only know what you did say. So if you say it with heart and conviction and you say it with a way which might arouse some additional curiosity, it's always going to be better. And uh, if you've thinned it by eliminating anything that's just completely unnecessary, you get a, a richer quality as well. So that's my content contribution on speech making. My making of the speech probably covers other bits and pieces. So the content stuff, sound, it sounds like you've read about speech making and learnt about rhetoric and that you have a sense of, the, the I guess, the the science and the craft of, of speech making. Did you get interested in this? Have you read books on it? And I, I haven't read too much, but I've, I've got to the stage uh, where I spot stuff and I get interested and then I, if I hear something, I'll listen to the rest and I'll go back and listen again. And the same with songwriting. And uh, I'm a bit of a mischief for songwriting and poetry and rewriting other people's songs and having a bit of fun with them and and then looking at the structure of songs and looking at the choice of words and, and, and rhythm and, and rhyme and, uh, and even teasing rhymes with different words. And a lot of that, in a way, is the same as building a design or building a piece of music. You're getting some attention, you're creating some rhythm and you're leaving people with hopefully something uplifting at the end. Uh, whether it's architecture, music, uh, singing, writing, speech making, the structures are similar. So playing with words, as I've always said to my kids, don't be frightened of words, words are friends. Yeah. And if you, would, if you adopt that um, as a, a maxim, it, it helps. It's interesting you talk about songs and, and rhyme because I think the reason I've do this podcast and that I got interested in great speeches is and the th- that made me a good speech writer was children's book writing so I'd written these kind of rhyming children's books and where you're very careful about the numbers of syllables and the sounds of words and what the musicality of the language is like and then that really mirrors in speech writing and I th- it's the thing that's ignored the most and that you hear with the good speakers that they really nail those cadences of the repeated phrase you know, but always four or five words. If they've, you know, there's sort of a sense of how long each of those repeated phrases should be, and the people who are good at it probably don't even know they're doing it. But you know, when, well, when you get used to it, you well, really when, when it. you've mastered that craft, and to, to a great extent, it is a craft. You then get the privilege and the power to do something different and twist that a bit. Uh, and I've written about that and spoken about that with architecture. So when you, when you master the art of orienting yourself to the, the weather, the sunshine, the landscape, whatever, once you've mastered that, then you, you develop the, oh, yes, but I can play a bit of a game here and do something different, which will take it to another level. Uh, and the same can be said for speech making. And that's why I'm, I'm when I'm speaking, I'm always searching for the opportunity to do something which people don't expect. And rhyme in song is an expectation, but uh, many contemporary songwriters find a, a twist to the rhyme uh, and use something that's it's 
the sound is similar, but it's not a rhyme, but it actually flows onto something else. And uh, uh, that's the wizardry of um, the good craft, I think. And have you got speeches, you talk about that ability to, to go in a new direction or a surprising direction or not to do the standard form good speech because this is now a great speech. Have you got a speech in mind when you think of that, some favourite speeches where you think they've, they've soared rather than just flown? Oh, well, I mean, it's hard to go past Churchill speeches, uh, but Teddy, Teddy Kennedy's funeral speech for his um, brother Bobby was, uh, is, is pretty spectacular in my view. I'm mindful of, of moments rather than speeches, and I think there are great spoken words even even somebody as colloquial as, as Bob Hawke, that magnificent moment, you know, anybody, any boss who sacks somebody for not coming to work today is a bum. Just as a, as a piece of theatre, as a, as a construction of a sentence and the words and the way he delivered it, it's magnificent. Yeah. And, and, and we remember it. I always think of the Amazing Grace moment. And in fact, if you listen to the Springsteen and Obama podcast, which is a really good podcast, but Obama's description, which obviously I can't get Obama on this podcast right now. I need to just get to the next level. But uh, (laughs) uh, his description of writing that speech and making the decision to sing is is, uh, the best 20 minutes I heard on podcast that year. It's it's so good. Uh, Obama fascinates me as a... A speech giver because he w- he really struggled without the paddles um, and I used to point out p- to people who were saying well, Obama's a great speaker well yes he was a good speaker but he struggled without the paddles he was uncomfortable off the cuff where he didn't need to be in my view and American presidents in the habit of going and visiting the troops and they'll give a speech with the assembled troops behind them which is good theatre for, for the political side of the event I guess but Obama always did that with the paddles. Uh, Is that, do you mean the auto cue? The auto cue, which the audience doesn't see. But if you're sitting behind somebody using the auto cue, you see the reflection. So the troops would be seeing that he's using the auto cues. And he would give a speech using the auto cues. Now, I've always said to people, well, I cannot think of a moment more suited to a leader giving a speech from the heart and off the cuff than standing in front of the troops. And yet Obama didn't feel comfortable with, without doing that. And without naming names, there are a few prominent Australians who have every reason to be very confident about everything they do but can't give a speech without using auto cues. It's a confidence thing, it's an experience thing, but they're just incapable, perhaps of nerves, perhaps of habit, of giving a speech without an auto cue. If you're interested in these things, you spot it straight away. And Obama used to nod his head like the clowns at the at the show where you put the ping pong ball in the clown's mouth and the, he'd be going from paddle to paddle, auto cue screen to auto cue screen. And it's a bit of a giveaway. And usually the television camera's set up so that you can't see the edge of the screen, but every now and then you just see the edge of one of the screens because it's not quite oriented correctly. But um, Well, I'd, I'd imagine a speech like, yes, we can... 
would be an auto cue speech, you know, a kind of a, an acceptance of a, of a presidency. So I, I guess addressing the, the troops might be one that isn't. Did you did you ever have very set piece auto cue speeches? I've, I've used auto cues, I think, on a couple of occasions, and I had rules about auto cues. I only used an auto cue as a supplement. If it was, by definition, it's a written speech, and so I had the written speech on the lectern in front of me. And for those who don't understand the auto cue, somebody has to roll the auto cue through the screen at the same pace as the speaker. So you can, you can roll too quickly, you can roll too slowly, unless you're in tune with the speaker. So I always had the, the, the speech on the lectern as well, so that I didn't do the head nod, left, right, left, right, left, right. So I could go to an autocue screen and maybe deliver a sentence and then I could look directly at the camera and deliver the, the next sentence which I knew was coming anyway and if I had a doubt about that I could glance down so that it was never for, it was never for me a primary source to use an autocue and I think it's, it's a mistake and I've also been in a situation where I've free-ranged, for want of uh, a better term, where I'm using the auto cue, but I felt the need, given the nature of the room, to stray from the written speech. So you deliver that straight to camera, and it's up to the person rolling the auto cue to work out what's happening. And if you worry about that person, you're a goner. <laughs> because rest assured, they don't worry about you. And it's always quite amusing when something goes wrong with the auto cue, and I think this happened to Joe Biden a couple of times, yeah. where someone's stuffed up the auto cue and he's lost it completely because he just couldn't do it without it. Well, I'll, I'll do the last the line that I've already. I'll pull out a line from each speech to make almost the title line, and I thought the most beautiful line in in the last paragraph, which, as you said, was the central paragraph of the speech, which is Victorians are as one. You have our hearts, you have our hands. We could quell these fires with tears, but tell your stories. I love that line, quell these fires with tears. That was a great one. Yep, <laughs> probably still could. Yeah, yeah. Moving from that speech to other ones, did you have one that stands out for you? I mean, you said you liked it when you hear a speech which twists the form and I actually put one up where you spoke to pharmacists, I think it was, on Anzac Day, a beautiful speech where you're jumping in time between a perspective of the Somme uh, with the perspective of the modern day perspective and it's, it's section by section and mm -hmm. it's got a really interesting structure to it. Are there speeches where you think, oh, I did well there, that was, that's one where I nailed it, it was interesting, it was different or even just it's a favourite well, I can't repeat it, <laughs> but um, I used to have the privilege of going down to government houses, both as Premier and as opposition leader and, and speaking at functions when, uh, and often at the Shrine and often in multicultural events where it's you know, bipartisanship in, entails both sides speaking. And I'm not averse to um, a bit of poetry and I remember going down to a government house event and I didn't have much prepped. And I got in the car and 
I decided that I was going to tell the audience it was a Cup Eve event, that uh, when I was a child, I only had one ambition, to be a jockey. <laughs> Which, for those who don't know, <laughs> is the equivalent of a sight gag. <laughs> uh, and I think I said that uh, my, my ambitions were truncated at a relatively young, young age. And I supplemented that speech by taking the Melbourne Cup field and turning the, the names into a poem and getting it, all 24 runners into a poem about the Cup. And uh, I managed, in the course of driving down there, and my wife was in the car and she sometimes refers to this as one of, one of my... Um, I guess she might say endearing attributes, of, um, curious approaches to doing things at the last minute and literally um, nutting it out on the way down to um, Government House. So 15, 20 minutes, sitting there waiting to speak, conjuring, you know, scribbling stuff on a piece of paper, conjuring up, oh, and I can twist that around, switch those two names around and get a, um, a better result out of that. Yep, get it and stand up give the gag about being a jockey and then going with a, um, an off-the-cuff poem and killing all the Melbourne Cup runners. I did that once. I've done it every year since. <laughs> but mostly, so, mostly just for the, for the benefit of friends because I haven't had the opportunity. But I get the, get the runners every year and see if I can quickly turn it into a poem. Have you got a favourite line that you remember one horse and one, one rhyme you've got for it? Oh, I... Oh. No, I, I can't off the cuff, but uh, um, I've probably got some of them on my phone because I would have put them together on my phone. So I do remember also um, when um, Cadell Evans won the Tour de France. I, knew, I had met Cadell through some friends and, and his manager, and I knew his manager, and uh, I said, now, tell Cadell we'll celebrate when he gets back, we'll do whatever he likes to do. So what we ended up with was a day at Fed Square and we invited the public to come and everybody to wear yellow. And we got everybody there. We had a huge crowd. Cadell came. He rode in, got up on the stage. I'd got a, would you believe it, I've found myself a yellow shirt and a yellow tie to wear. And I, I wrote some lines for that and... To effect that, I pulled out the speech out of my pocket, as speakers sometimes do, to lay it on the lectern, and it was printed on bright yellow paper. <laughs> <laughs> so it got a bit of trouble just for the visuals. And I remember a line in that, uh, if you remember that Tour de France, uh, and I referred to that schlecking time trial. <laughs> <laughs> schlecking used as a swear word. <laughs> Was Cadell had knocked off um, Andy Andy Schleck, uh, and I remember the audience had to understand something about the, the Tour de France to get the line, and I got a, a good rise and a laugh out of that. So I knew the audience was a, a genuine audience, and I think Cadell liked the line as well. And I've had a few people talk to me since about that Schleck and time trial. <laughs>
And what about, we had um, Premier Melanouskas from South Australia on a couple of episodes ago and I was congratulating him on his victory speech and he said, well, every Premier is, is, gets a victory speech and every Premier has to give their concession speech or their re- retirement speech as well. Have you got vivid memories of either of those did you th- and did you think you did a better job on either of those? Well, um, in terms of retirement, I did a press conference to uh, announce that I, I was leaving. Uh, it was about an hour. Uh, it was a pretty packed press conference up in the Legislative Council room. I went into that with my media advisor and all the journalists in the room thought they knew why I was leaving. Uh, they thought they knew. They thought they had all the details. They had no idea. Uh, they got it wrong and they never asked me uh, other than I gave a one-liner about... Um, it was my sense that this was the uh, in the best interest of the government, blah, blah, blah. But I was never pursued about the reason. And I walked away with my media advisor and I said to... That's amazing. Not one of the journalists asked me why. And... Some have asked me since because they've realised that they got it wrong. But in terms of victory in 2010, I remember we were, uh, we were across the road here at uh, whatever the hotel was called in those days, the Sofitel. And we had a function downstairs and there were various people in the room that we had and there were some people in the room who thought it was their position to tell me what to say. And there were some people in the room who were insisting that I say what uh, they told me to say. Uh, I can't remember precisely what I did say, but I knew that the very worst thing I could do was to follow their advice. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't follow that advice. I think I got it pretty right on the night. And there are moments where uh, the worst thing you can do is claim things unto yourself. You've got to honour the people you're succeeding uh, first up, uh, honour the people in the room and uh, humility is, that's the moment to strike the, the right baseline for humility, I think. And I, I'd be a bad reporter myself if I didn't say, so why did they think you were quitting and why were you quitting? Oh, you'll have to wait, <laughs> have to wait for the book, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise we were doing a pre-publicity interview. I'll give you another example of, I can give you an example of someone who got it wrong and with great respect to Malcolm Turnbull when... Uh, when uh, the um, constitutional referendum was on and uh, the result came through, you remember the, the next day, Malcolm, Malcolm stood up and pointed the finger at John Howard and, and said that he was the man that broke Australia's heart. Could not have done a worse job, in my view, and in the process reinforced the flaw in their whole approach to that referendum, which was making it a contest. A change like that's not a contest, it's a change. And if you portray something as a contest, then it's winners and losers. And if there are losers, no one will ever win. And to finish with, Ted, you mentioned um, some of the tips, I guess, for people trying to write a speech. Uh, What about delivery? Well, I, I have a thing that I've taught our kids and I teach people when I'm talking about speech making is when you walk into a room look up the first thing you should do in any room if you're going to be giving a speech is look up and look at the four corners of the room 
and that will give you the dimensions. It will give your head up. You get the dimensions of the room. And then if you're speaking, don't speak to the people. Speak to the walls. Speak through the walls. Eyeball the people, but speak to the walls. Of course, if you want to speak quietly, do so. But speak to the walls. Uh, that's the most important thing. And relish an interruption. I, I witnessed a minister recently give a speech where the whole room started talking and the minister ploughed on with a written speech and uh, the PA system wasn't working. And the room started talking louder because the minister was talking louder and the minister never read the room. But I have one rule for speech making and delivery. If you can, don't use a microphone. Because 100 years ago, nobody had any microphone. Even in our cathedrals, they didn't have microphones. And if you can speak without a microphone, you've won the audience straight away. Yeah. Here we are sitting here, you've got a microphone and I've got a microphone. <laughs> you've got an electric device as well. But I, I know what you mean. It, you need these sorts of rooms. I do find that if you get sort of a narrow room at the MCG where you know, they're spreading out 50 metres each direction for a lunch like I will be tomorrow, uh, it's terrible without a microphone. Like you end up, it's just so loud, the noise you're contending with. No? No. You'd never use one? Uh, I, 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 what I'll normally do is I'm not going to use a microphone. I don't believe in microphones. I don't believe in PA systems. The great buildings of the world never had PA systems. If you can't hear, I'll speak louder. If you still can't hear, I'll shift until you can. And if you still can't hear, then maybe I'll pick up a microphone. Well, there, there's a, the pro, there's the anti-microphone. I'm, I'm not as hardcore as that. I, I use microphones. Don't swim with a wetsuit. Don't speak with a microphone. <laughs> and you are a great swimmer, Ted. I know one of my speak older heroes, Michael Gordon, who passed away. Is it, are we up to five or six years now? It's uh, 2018, so four a years. Le a legend with words. Amazing writer and and a real supporter of Speakola, and you were there that day, um, and and you used to swim with Michael. Still swimming, still swimming, and Michael's birthday recently. Uh, I spoke to Robin, and um, he's still with us in many ways, and we we still what do in the pool what we call a gordo, which involves a bit of underwater swimming as well. Wise with words, warm with the world, wild in the water. That was my take on Michael Gordon. Well, Michael Gordon, the great age writer. If you want to see the eulogies for Michael Gordon, there's some great ones, including one from Paul Keating, who spoke well that day at his uh, memorial at the MCG. Um, I think I'm in trouble, Tony. I think there's a banging on the door here. Yep. <laughs> well, th there's a lot of gold downstairs. I'm going to go and see where it used to be kept. There's still some down there Is under glass. It's worth going and having a look. <laughs> Thank you so much for no coming No worries. On. Thanks, Tony. And, and keep doing what you're doing. Love Speak Island. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that chat and we've got an amazing episode coming up next. It's going to be Abram Goldberg and Fiona Harris. Abram has released a book about his life, 
He's a Holocaust survivor. He's 98 years old. And he's released a book written with Fiona Harris about his incredible experiences, the tragic experiences of the 50 people in Abram's immediate family at the outbreak of war. Only Abram, his sister, and her child survived the Holocaust. And Abram's going to talk about those experiences with particular note of a speech delivered in the Lodge Ghetto in 1942, a tragic and horrible speech to hear, a speech delivered by a guy called Mordechai Rumkowski. He was the Jewish leader of the Lodge Ghetto, and he delivered a speech called Give Us Your Children, asking for parents to hand over their children with a view to preserving the rest of the population of the ghetto, a horrible speech to deliver and to hear, and Abram was there to hear it live. So that is the next episode of the podcast. It does take a day or so to edit the episodes. It takes half a day to record them. And so if you can help me out, the stream of patrons has become a bit of a trickle. I think I got to 50 at the start of the year. I'm only at 53 or so now. Uh, So thank you to all who do contribute. But if you can join us, it would make a difference. Speech of the week, and it's another sombre theme, the Black Saturday fires. We heard about it in the chat with Mr. Bailey. For any of us who live through them here in Victoria, it's a day that is seared on the memory. I was at Red Hill. I'd been at a wedding during the day and just watching the television and seeing with horror the news as it unfolded. And this speech, I think, marks the mood of that time. It's a very somber, it's a very short speech, but it's a short and somber and beautiful speech. And I'm going to play it now. To each and every one of you sharing this quiet, to those in all the towns about, to those in homes, in prayers, in pubs, in hospitals, in city streets, to those in the relief centres, the staging points, to those who have assembled here, to those buried in each other's arms, holding each other's hands, wiping each other's tears, to those trembling still, to the children in wonder, to those who answered the call from far and wide, in yellow, in green, in orange, in blue, in khaki, in white, and under the cross of red, and those still dusted in black. To those pitching the canvas, those under it, those who have lost homes, lost livelihoods. To family and friends of those who have perished. But most of all, to those who have seen the flames, to those who have been blinded by the darkness of the day, smelled the smoke, heard the roar, and then in turn been deafened by the silence. 
Our simple message is, we are as one. Victoria is as one. You have our hearts. You have our hands. We could quell these fires with tears. But tell your stories. Tell your stories and let's lift the sadness together. Victoria, at its most ferocious, is now at its finest. Well, that's the end of the episode. A big thank you to Ted Bailey, 41st Premier of Victoria. Appreciated you coming on the podcast, Ted. Appreciate all the support for Speakola website and podcast. If you, like Ted, want to send in a speech, I'd love to have it. Send it to Tony at speakola.com. Might be a eulogy, might be a birthday speech, might be a political speech, but send it through love to immortalize the words or at least as long as i can afford the web hosting (laughs) just need words and an image thanks to the generous people who have made donations or become patrons in recent weeks and months thanks to docplay.com for being a sponsor www.docplay.com forward slash racks forward slash speakola you can get 45 days free to try out this fabulous streaming service thanks to david bridey for our theme song i mentioned it earlier but a great episode coming up a really sad episode abram goldberg founder of the melbourne holocaust museum and fiona harris talking about abram's experience of that heim rumkowski speech give me your children coming up in the next episode subscribe to the podcast rate and review us if you can tell a friend Until next time.